HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Kat Johnson kicked the season off with an episode about food and football, so now we're turning to one of my favorite sports, talking about cookbooks. We'll take a sneak peek at a few recipe breakthroughs that Rose Levy-Berenbaum discovered while working on her 12th cookbook. You know, so this was such a eureka thing. People ask me if I still keep learning... And yeah, just thinking about it and trying to find a better way. It happens. And hear about the challenges of writing a book about alcohol from HRN host Souther Teague. The history of drinking is very blurry because people were drinking and no one was taking notes. Plus, we'll get all the expert dish about the most exciting cookbook titles heading to bookstores this fall. Like jazz music, it's been a part of American cuisine for for centuries. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the next episode drops. Listening to Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network, I'm your host, Cora Lee. Suzanne Cope has written on food near and far, from small batch cheesemakers in Northern California to cooking schools in Marrakesh, on the popularity of sauerkraut in Cuba, the feminist history of food journalism, and on the ever changing streets of Bedstuy. How did and will we define American culture if not by its constituent parts? How did immigrants and early wave feminists interpret American cuisine differently than Americans do today? What is gastronationalism and why now I push for it? Cope is currently working on a book about the backdoor restaurants of the civil rights movement and how the government worked to stop them. She also teaches writing at NYU. Thanks so much for joining me today, Suzanne. Oh, it's a pleasure. So let's start with where you're from. Just yes. like geographically. Oh, just you, yeah. Sure. I'm from Western New York, a small town, and um, I am, my mother was Italian, is an Italian American, and my dad. I always call him the American side. Um, <laughs> although I've come to realize that you know maybe in comparison to what felt like the ethnic Italian side, really the American side had all this basis in Dutch roots and, and German roots, which is where you know his grandparents and his parents were from. So. Um, so yeah, it was a small town, and there were a lot of uh, a lot of farms nearby. So we had a lot of fresh food, but also there was you know this mix of processed food and packaged food. And my both my parents worked a lot. They were good cooks, but it was kind of strange growing up. Um, they weren't that adventurous, and 
you know, thinking back, I think it was a mix of what was available and what they thought we should be eating in the 80s. And um, and now they're they're both very adventurous and, and they love to cook interesting things. But I remember even um, you know, my father going to the grocery store and bringing back a mango and he had never seen a mango before. And this is not that long ago. And he's like, yeah, this thing, I think it's called a mango. Like, peel it and eat it. And I, we know now that it was, very, it was very unripe. And so we're tasting this mango that, you know, was super dry. And we're like, this is not delicious at all. But it was just so funny that this was our first, you know, interaction with a mango mm-hmm. in, the, in the 1980s. Yeah, so you wrote that um, your grandma had passed down a recipe box and you were so excited to open it up and cover these maybe Italian recipes, but you were sorely disappointed. And why is that? I was. Yeah, my grandmother, um, she died when I was in high school and she had always, you know, not really taught her, well, at least not, maybe my oldest cousin learned a little bit of cooking, but not um, some of the younger cousins. Mostly she was like, no, just go get an education. You're not going to need to be in the kitchen like me. This is why I'm working so hard. And so I realized that I never really learned to cook. I mean, I, I'm almost a self-taught cook. Of course, I've cooked a lot with my mother since then, but um, I was in college and I thought this is when I really became interested in cooking and I got you know Martha Stewart cookbook and I'd make kind of weird to me dishes like um, cucumber, cold cucumber soup, which I'd never heard of and things like that. And I called my mother and get these um, Italian recipes. And so I hadn't really thought where these recipes came from or if they were written down. And then you know, years later, we were we were uh, cleaning up my grandfather's my grandfather's house, and I found this box, and I was so excited. And I bring it back. I was living in Boston at the time, and I open it up, and it was all these clipped things from you know, like Jello molds and and these weird recipes I don't remember my grandmother making. Um, and so I just thought, why why did she save these? And so I just kind of tucked it in a corner. And it wasn't until more recently when I started to look at the history, the feminist history of, of food writing, that I, I saw the bigger picture. And um, and it turns out that her uh, Italian recipes, it was I think my aunt does have a few of them written down, but she didn't really write them down. She just knew them. And so it wasn't something that she, yeah, that, that she had anywhere. It was in her it was in her mind. It was in our culture. Mm-hmm. That's actually something really interesting. When I we were talking about this before the show, but when I first started cooking, um, it was because I saw Paula Dean on Food Network make pop, a chicken pot pie with bisquick. I don't know if anyone remembers what bisquick is, and um, I think I remembered seeing it in the back of our pantry. It was super expired. I used it, and it was disgusting. It was just really doughy and just not at all good tasting. But it was like, oh, I guess like this is what American households are cooking and what like American quote unquote American food tastes like, and. Um, in the streets, you see like a lot of old cookbooks, like uh, yeah, like Jello molds and aspics. And to who are these recipes familiar, and why why have they been deemed you know classic American dishes? And you know, I think about this too, and I think that's part of the explanation of these clipped recipes from decades and decades ago. Is that when so my my grandmother was technically born in America, but then she went back to Italy when she was very young, and then came back here. And so, in a lot of ways. It was as if she was born in Italy, even though she was technically American. And um, she came back here as a younger, a younger child. And um, and when she got here and grew up, she was in this you know mostly Italian speaking neighborhood. And then when she got married to another Italian American and they had children, they did not teach their children Italian. And it was you know it was considered very ethnic. And so they really tried to Americanize their kids. And that was what they. Yeah, that was that was kind of their MO and I think that was with food as well. They're like, okay, if we're going to be American, it, they didn't just cook quote-unquote American food, but um but certainly there was plenty of 
of that kind of food to help their family fit in. And, um, and so my mother kind of regrets that too. She wishes that she had asked to learn Italian um, or asked to learn some of kind of the stranger, um, you know, more complicated Italian dishes. And that, that culture is a little bit lost. And so even though I've asked my mom, I'm like, oh, do you remember making this when you were a kid? And we've kind of pieced together how to make, you know, brujol, which is, uh, you know, taking beef and, and wrapping it around egg and cheese. Um, you know, we've made that once together. And, you know, I don't, you know, we don't really have my grandmother's version. And it's, it's lost. It's kind of sad. Mm-hmm. Just to push on that. So they felt that pressure from external pressure? Was it kind of internal? Like we just really feel this need to fit into whatever mold we see? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, probably a little bit of both. The town was small enough where, um, you know, there's a large uh, Polish population and a large Italian population that didn't necessarily get along, although, you know, now it's, they're almost indistinguishable. And then, um, you know, I think I think it was made probably more external and just thinking how what will give my kids the best the best chance in life and it's to make them more American and not less mm-hmm. and uh, whatever American you know in quotation marks means and so um, and you know I definitely when I was younger I felt the Italian part being celebrated more but by the time you know that was the 80s and 90s and and it wasn't you know bad quote-unquote to be Italian anymore um, but there was always this sense of of otherness and just the otherness keeps being replaced or, you know, switching, I think, in American culture, which is funny because, you know, we were talking a lot about what is American culture and, and you could you could just absolutely trace that otherness and trace what wasn't part of American culture and then it became part of it and then um, then people want to get back to the roots. But, yeah, it's just so much of it is just Italian-American or Mexican-American or Polish-American. Mm-hmm. I think that's, yeah, like especially today when you think of American food, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, like pasta and pizza. And it's so, it's just so accepted. But do you think that shift happened with your generation or with your mother's generation? I think it was before. Um, there was an interesting book uh, that I read at one point for a more academic article that I read that was about how Italian food became accepted and part of American culture. I mean, pizza is, although there's pizza in Naples, pizza is very much, in a lot of ways, an American creation. And um, Alfredo is an American creation. And so, or, you know, it's Italian-American. And that is, yeah, has been accepted, although it's still kind of like an accepted, you know, ethnic, whatever that word means now, um, food. And, yeah, I think it was slowly happening. You see it a lot happening in the, um, really in the first half of the century is when people became excited. It was you know, a, an acceptable kind of exotic food that you could eat. And then now, yeah, it's uh, pasta is something that's in almost everybody's cupboards, really. Mm-hmm. Although pasta, of course, is, you know, you think of pasta as being Italian, but, you know, there's Chinese pasta and, and, and Japanese. I mean, it's in almost every nation, there's some version of pasta as well. We just think of it as being Italian. Mm-hmm. I saw a recipe online for like a miso ramen pasta, but it was like a Alfredo version too like there was just oh all gosh. these things happening at once <laughs> um, but yeah so with you and your personal history how would you characterize American culture and American cuisine today I think you can I think I've, I've gone from you know calling one half of my family jokingly half jokingly the American half to saying there is you know what is American culture that I mean what what has always defined us as being diverse is, um, you know, is having so many different cultures that all come together. And I've become more, um, I've, recently I've been, I've gone to a couple dinners by this group called the I Collective, and they're a Native American um, chef and knowledge keeper um, and farmer collective, and they're really amazing. And, um, you know, it takes it right back to like, let's talk about what is actually quote unquote American, right. since America 
you know, Native Americans lived here before America was America. And that's what they specialize in, in almost exclusively um, pre-colonial foods. And these, these meals are amazing and delicious and high-end. And, um, you know, you don't have things like wheat. So you call apple pie American? I mean, that's not, that wasn't here. That's not, that's not native to, um, to where we live. So what is, what is American? I think I've almost gone back and say that you can't, you can't define it, or the definition is its diversity. Not to mention that we live in a country that is so large geographically that what is native um, cropped-wise in one area is you know, completely ungrowable in another area, at least naturally. Mm-hmm. Like with all these invasive species now, it's like, what is really American crop? Yeah. Um, so how then, if at all, does um, the telling of American food history differ from group to group? I know you've written from a lot of different voices, a lot of different angles. So can you give like a kind of a spark notes to get us <laughs> into our conversation? Mm, well, you know, one story that I just researched a couple, um, maybe a year and a half ago that I think is really interesting is how what is American could have been so completely different if not for this one event. Um, I was invited to go down to Pensacola because there were some people, um, there was a new settlement that was discovered. And they knew that um, Tristan de Luna was this Spanish um, explorer who had come over in, I think, 1559. And so it was pre-St. Augustine, which is considered the first colonial settlement in um, in the U.S. And even I am like trying to be super careful of saying, this is not the first settlement. This is the first European settlement, the first colonial settlement. Of course, Native Americans were here before. Um, but when we think about American culture, we always have it defined by its European colonists. And, um, and this story just makes me think about how that could have been so easily changed. And so there was this group that intended to be a permanent settlement. Um, and actually, you know, we say it's, it was Spanish, but, um, but actually almost everybody, uh, to a man, um, one of the uh, academics told me about, is that everybody was, had been living in what is now Mexico. And so they were Aztec warriors, there were Native Americans, there were um, free and enslaved blacks from Africa, um, there were Spaniards. And so they came as this group, as a settlement, and um, right around from Pensacola. From where did they come? From, so they came from, from Mexico. Okay. And then they went actually through Havana, and then they ended up... Um, in, in Florida, what is now Florida. And what happened was before they were able to secure their food stores, a big hurricane came and knocked out their food. Mm-hmm. And they actually survived for a while after that, but it just became too difficult. And so um, the settlement really showed how much these different groups um, were finding the, the remnants of the settlement because they knew that this had happened, but they didn't know the details. Um, how, finding how much the groups had interacted, you know, how much did the, the Aztecs and the Spaniards, did they share foods? Did they share? Because when you share foods, you're sharing so much more, as we all know. So mm-hmm. it was so interesting about how the foods really showed how these cultures, um, you know, were intermixing and were getting along. And so they ended up abandoning the settlement. But if they hadn't, if this one hurricane hadn't happened, um, some of these archaeologists assert that America would look completely different. Their goal was to end up, was to go from Pensacola, from the Panhandle out to the Atlantic Ocean was to create this, um, you know, very clear trade route. Mm -hmm. Basically, that means that um, Spain could have colonized the whole southern half of the United States, and there were already um, French colonists um, in, you know, what is now Canada, and they would have come down, and that would have discouraged perhaps the English colonists Mm -hmm. from coming over. And so, so, so easily we could have ended up this country that, um, or two different countries, or multiple countries that, Nobody was speaking English, where tacos really were something that was, you know, whatever that country was called, mm-hmm. really were native. And, um, and so it's fascinating to think how 
it, it's almost capri like a border is completely whimsical. It's capricious. It's someone is completely man-made. So how can you really define a place? It's just whoever has the power is doing the defining, is creating the dominant narrative. Um, so yeah, I resist. I resist being you know trying to define it. I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really key point um, where you're saying that it's kind of arbitrary who is kind of telling the story but Mm -hmm. then we see so much of American food history being written by like feminists right like the you write this article about women in the household cooking these like jello mold uh, recipes or even um, like immigrants so how can you talk about like these different histories that we get you know so much of it was there and we just don't it didn't make it you know didn't really rise to the top as something that we consider still um, important or, or definitive today. You know, doing this research about the feminist um, history of food writing, I mean, food writing is so, it's so hot right now, and so many people are, like, it's so interesting, and people are seeing how food um, has its tentacles in so many different parts, perhaps every part, almost, of American life. Um, but, you know, for so long, food was part of the home, it was the women's purview. And when you really look at it, you're like, wow, it didn't become, you know, hot until men started taking it over. And women had laid all this groundwork, really amazing women. And women really were doing the kind of day-to-day changes in how people think, you know, just by introducing, say, Mexican recipes and saying, this is something that you can cook and that is not weird and it's, um, and it's a valid cuisine. Or here is a Creole cook who um, is really good at what she does. She's a master. She's an expert. And calling, you know, both women and also um, women who weren't, you know, of European descent um, experts at something and giving them the due that they have, I think was so important in changing how people think, even if people really didn't realize how it was changing. I think that's what happens so often is that um, our perspectives start to change, but we never really put that into words. And, um, and so all this groundwork was being laid for, um, for larger changes that were happening in society and, um, you know, more acceptance of different cultures, food, but of course otherwise. And obviously we have a long way to go and obviously, you know, so much change has happened since then and still needs to happen. But when you think about how change slowly happens over time, it happens in the home and it happens with the food you eat and what you're exposed to. Um, and I think that that was so important. And these stories have just been unsung for so long, I think, because they were women. And people didn't realize their importance. And so I hope that now people are starting to realize the importance of these quieter narratives. And they're only quieter because, um, you know, they, they didn't have the power to elevate them in a lot of ways. This was relegated to women's work. And so hopefully now people are starting to think about um, the power that they have had in changing culture and that, you know, this is a story that is important and it did have a lot of impact. And it also laid the groundwork for the men that came after them um, who took it over because they realized it was something really wonderful and powerful and great. I think there's also this kind of third quiet power, which is like food media um, and a lot of like Instagram and Facebook where you were just mindlessly scrolling through food. And how do you think or who do you think is guiding those narratives? You know, I think that with just social media in general, you have more people who have at least some power. Um, but with that power, I mean, comes a lot of responsibility. I mean, we, we heard of various people who just haven't been very thoughtful about how they've represented, um, you know, whether it's cultural appropriation or, or just not um, giving, um, you know, representing a certain group or representing, you know, wherever they got their knowledge from or, or trying to make something look Mexican, whatever it is they think Mexican is, um, you know, you can perpetuate a narrative that is not um, 
in my opinion, the, the correct narrative or reinforcing the dominant narrative or an incorrect narrative. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's giving us more options, but it's also uh, there's more ways where you can kind of get or reinforce incorrect information and, um, and kind of forget to be more critical about your perspective. And I mean, this comes from teaching teaching English, you know, at NYU and, and my college undergrads is what, you know, that's really what we try to do in the classroom is whether it's about food writing or any kind of writing is just how can we really think about what are the voices that are absent? Um, and how can we think about the narratives that aren't being told and how can we, uh, elevate that and, and consider why are the, uh, the narratives that are being told, why are those the ones that are getting the most, um, the most clicks, the most likes, the most views, and maybe try to do a little bit to rectify that. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Suzanne Cope. This is Meant to Be Eaten. We'll be right back after a short break. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise in affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Surchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Meant to be eaten. I'm speaking with Suzanne Cope, who is an author and professor at NYU, and we were just talking about um, kind of identifying absent voices in the food media landscape and how to maybe elevate them or maybe just step back and let them step in. So yeah, how would you prescribe to <laughs> fixing that problem? Because there are a lot of um, like white chefs or white documentary people that you know would be like I'm now featuring this small colony of people and it just rubs people the wrong way like it reeks of colonialism so how how would you prescribe a sensitive way to do that you know it is so incredibly hard I think and it's something that I just every day uh, when I'm writing I just try to do better and I try to ask people um, am I using the right terminology am I um, you know, what, how, how do you want me to represent you? And I've said, for example, with the I Collective, um, I've written um, one article about them and, and I have others in the works. And I have told them again and again, I said, I'm, I'm here to tell, I'm here to help you tell your story. I'm really the conduit. And I think of it as me having the resources, me having the privilege, I have the access or the experience to tell those stories. And so instead of just going kind of the easy route and saying, oh, I, you know, here's five people I went to, you know, grad school with and I can tell their stories, why don't you try and find these other stories of people who don't have that same network. So I think it's finding the stories, highlighting them, and also trying to be as respectful as possible to the stories they want to tell. So for example, with the I Collective, again, as I now that I've gotten to know them, I know that they have, um, they don't want to be reduced to, here's a great Native American recipe. Like that would, that would not be cool with them. And mm-hmm. so 
I'm very um, particular about the types of stories um, I might pitch and where I might pitch those stories and making sure that um, that the story, that their narrative is being told, not the one that's going to get me, you know, a couple hundred bucks or whatever it might be, um, or a byline. And so part of it is, you know, finding these groups and, and respecting them and, and just always trying to do a little bit better uh, with your language. Even, you know, one ill-placed word or, or not well-thought-of word can really um, can show your ignorance and, and reduce a group. Um, and so that's what I try to do. And I try to just use, yeah, use my, my position as best I can to tell diverse stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I had them um, on the show a few seasons ago, um, what they brought up, which was really interesting, is that in American culture, we have this kind of celeb culture, right? Where you like have the one master who has mastered this cuisine and wants to be kind of celebrated for all his knowledge. But um, with the Eye Collective, they don't have that similar kind of culture. And so you know, I was so excited about the work they're doing. I'm like, let's talk about it on there, and I want everyone to know about it. And they were like, we're just doing what we want to do, you know, and it's great that you're interested in it, but that's okay, too. Yeah, I, know. I was thinking, I was like, I, I keep using them as an example because I think what they're doing is so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's great. It's not helping, it's not making people feel necessarily good about what they're eating, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they want people to be more thoughtful and in, in a way that might certainly make them uncomfortable because... You don't move forward in your thinking until you have that cognitive dissonance where you're like, oh, wait, I need to rethink the way that I've, you know, said something or, or approached something or thought about something. And so I think they're um, really a model for how a lot of people can use food in, uh, in politics today. Mm-hmm. And speaking of rethinking approaches, can you talk about your first book on small batch cooking and how uh, your research on Cuba kind of flipped everything that you thought about small batch and vice versa. Sure, yeah. I, um, I, you know, had been interested in eating more locally. I mean, I've been part of a CSA for more than a decade. And so I started to really do some research into what is local eating. And that led me towards artisanal food. And also it was, you know, the narrative with my grandmother is just thinking she, I came back to canning. She didn't teach me to can, but I remember her canning. And so I went back and started to can kind of to understand her relationship with food a little bit better and, um, and my culture's uh, relationship with food. And so that led me to this book, Small Batch, um, Pickles, Cheese, Chocolate, Spirits, and the uh, Return of Artisanal Food. And so I was looking at, um, in 2012, I did most of my research, and this, you know, a lot of small batch um, companies were on the rise. And it was a fascinating narrative. And really, there, I mean, because of necessity, there were a lot of small batch uh, companies all over in, uh, in America and also happening in, um, in smaller towns or in, in houses and stuff. So maybe they weren't like this large industry. They were, or even a company, it was more just individual. Um, and then they fell by the wayside during the 50s uh, for the most part. And then, you know, for a couple decades because of industrialization and various things. And then people started to embrace them again, kind of starting in late, two, um, like around 2007. And, um, and so I thought that was all very interesting and it taught me a lot about American culture and what we prize in food, et cetera, et cetera. And then I was, became very interested in Cuba because I thought, okay, they have such a very specific um, food history. They had the embargo. People must have gone back to these artisanal roots in a lot of the same ways that, you know, my grandmother did when she didn't have a lot of money. And I'm going to go there and do some research. And I went there and I realized just Cuba is such a unique and different place that you just can't wrap your head around. I mean, you have to you have to forget everything you know about the United States for the most part and what you think you know about food culture. And so that um, showed me how closely aligned politics and food 
uh, food culture, but also the power of food within the household um, really were. And so Nitza Villapol was basically, we call her, people have called her um, Cuba's Julia Child, but really, you know, she wrote the equivalent of maybe like the joy of cooking. Um, and it defined Cuban food. But really that first iteration had so many um, American recipes because it was before the embargo. And then after that, she really embraced a lot of these classic Cuban recipes. And um, and she was helping people, um, you know, re-explore Malanga and, and these other uh, root vegetables that were considered peasant food. And so um, I... I saw how she had this voice. She was considered the second most popular um, woman in Cuba for decades. And she was, you know, just a, a cooking celebrity, but she was so much more to people. She represented so much more. And so that led me to thinking about um, food and politics in a lot of interesting ways. And then, um, you know, then I started looking at other examples of people who were maybe. Um, had a similar influence as Nitsa in other parts of the world. And then that led me back to the United States and just thinking about the power of food in different political movements. And so um, that's where my research has kind of roundabout taken me in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So you talked about how um, Nitsa was bringing back to the Cuban household these once foreign or, I guess, returning them to these traditional ingredients and do you, well, that was by necessity because they had to return but why do you think today I feel like a lot of quote-unquote American people are returning to their traditional roots and rediscovering these traditional dishes and it's not so much by necessity but why do you think we have that pull backwards you know that's an interesting question I wonder if um, you know part of it is wanting to celebrate this diversity that was already there I think a lot of people myself included, for sure, took, oh, we're in America, we could go anywhere and get, you know, Vietnamese food and get Chinese food and at any time. And then suddenly it started to feel very threatened. And, um, you know, I, I am among many people, I think, who became um, activated in that time. Just, you know, yeah, you perhaps are talking about like the last year and a half, but you could or two years, you could have been talking about, you know, maybe the last couple of years. But I think a lot of people, um, you know, suddenly realize that it's, up to us again to perhaps look at um, our privilege or our resources and how can we continue to celebrate what we really love. I mean, um, so many, you know, political things that have happened that have made a lot of us, um, you know, feel maybe physically ill (laughs) or just very discouraged. Maybe a lot of them don't affect us in the day to day, but we eat in the day to day. And then when you suddenly start to realize, and this is part of, um, you know, what a lot of these groups who who are marrying politics and food are doing, they realize it's like, well, yeah, if you no longer have these resources or you no longer, um, you know, can have Mexican food um, made by someone who who grew up eating it, what do you lose? And not just what do you lose on the table, but what do you lose in your larger culture? How does that, you know, again, come back to how does that help you define what what you love about culture? I mean, you know, I live in Brooklyn. What I love about culture here is that it's it, there's so many different people. And even talking to my um, writing class the other day, we were talking about the diversity of, of narratives and how we get other people um, elevating their narratives and being able to tell their stories. And they even, you know, laughed and said, this is what I love about, you know, coming to NYU and coming to this class is that if we all thought the same and looked the same and came from the same place, that would be really boring and we wouldn't have these great conversations. So, you know, it may seem like it's about food, but it's really about it's about so much more. 
Mm-hmm. And how do you see these questions manifest in what you're currently working on? Um, so I met with some amazing um, Black Panther Party members uh, yesterday, and I'm interested in, um, right now I'm researching very specifically the um, free breakfast program, and what I saw was that here's this um, need, this very specific need that the Black Panthers were um, fulfilling. I mean, there were people, there were kids mostly, you know, who were going hungry. And, um, and so they came into communities. They said, how can we help? You know, we are, you know, this is, this is our community. And, um, and the government um, did many things in their power, including, including trashing, urinating on food, donated food that children were going to eat. Um, the police force did that. And they did this because they did not want to lose the power of the narrative, basically. Um, the Black Panthers were becoming too powerful because of these survival programs, as they called them. And so, um, so this is, I think, a really important story, not to vilify the government, but to say food is about power. And, um, and, and to think twice, like, you, you know, the, the, the narrative of the Black Panthers is that they were violent and, and they were trying to push this agenda. Well, if your agenda is feeding hungry kids... You know, I mean, maybe you need to rethink what you think you know about this time period or about this group. And then, you know, ironically, the government saw that this was a need and they eventually to, I, I believe, I argue in part to, um, to gain favor among different groups, they began um, free lunch and well, free, lunch, free lunch and free breakfast had existed in some um, form, but they expanded them greatly um, after they basically shut down the Black Panthers. And so, um, and so I find that very interesting that they, you know, they finally started to fulfill this need, but it was almost out of this political uh, agenda. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm looking at that story, and I hope to I hope to tell that story. And I've had some very generous Black Panther Party members uh, talk to me and promise to talk to me. So um, so it's a really it's a really interesting story right now in New York. So when the government reintroduced these pro- these programs, was it with any acknowledgement of the ones that they had shut down, or was it just a complete rebranding almost? Oh yeah, absolutely not. And I mean, there's I just went to this great um, exhibit. It's been up for a while at the Schomburg um, Center in Harlem, but um, this was a lead tour. And there's a quote that they have that of uh, J. Edgar Hoover that said, "The breakfast, the free breakfast program, is a threat to America." I mean, this is crazy. Give, you know, free food, donate, giving free donated food to kids is a threat to America. I mean, it, you think about the propaganda, and it's, it's just pretty mind-blowing. And, it's, you know, and that's just one aspect. Think of all the different ways that um, you have someone in power who's dominating the story mm-hmm. and, um, and all the things we don't know or we just uh, assume that what we thought we knew or were taught was true. And, um, and I think that's, that's really where I'm more interested in telling these stories. There's other stories, too, with the civil rights, um, mostly about also wanting to elevate the um, female voices that didn't always get, uh, get, get told. Even with the Black Panther Party, um, you always see these you know, burly men feeding the children. More than half of the Black Panther Party members were female, and they ran so much of the, of the party. And so I, I really want to help uh, tell that story, too, about the women. This is Meant to be Eaten. I'm speaking with Suzanne Cope, and we'll be back next week. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been so much fun. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, 
at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.